Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and today we are going to talk to Philip Girard about his co-authored book with Jim Phillips and Blake Brown, entitled History of the Law in Canada. The book was awarded the Walter Owen Prize from the Foundation for Legal Research. Philip Girard is one of Canada's most accomplished legal historians. He is currently a law professor at Osgoode Hall Law School at York University. Before joining Osgoode Hall, Professor Girard was a professor at Dalhousie University's Schulich School of Law. Among his many other books is his outstanding biography of Supreme Court of Canada Justice Borlaskin, for which the Champlain Society awarded him the Floyd S. Chalmers Award for Best Book Published on Ontario History. He's an honorary fellow of the American Society for Legal History, the first Canadian to be so recognized. Philip, welcome to Witness to Yesterday. Thanks for joining us today. It's a great pleasure to be here, Greg. Thanks for asking me. Philip, we first met when you were visiting the London School of Economics, where I was a PhD student doing my uh, degree. And at the time, even though you were already uh, at the, a faculty member at the law school at Dalhousie, you were actually thinking about doing a PhD in history because of your love of uh, legal history. But you actually did complete this PhD about a decade later. So what I want to know is, was it worth it? Well, let me say, first of all, you have a very good memory if you actually remember that I was talking about that back in 1988. So I'm, I'm impressed. Um, Definitely, it was worth it. Uh, let, let me say, first of all, that, uh, as, as you said, I have always taught in a law faculty, and when I started teaching law, it was not customary for law professors to have doctorates, so I did not have a doctorate in law or any other discipline. But once I decided I wanted to do legal history, I thought, well, I really should uh, go through the steps of immersing myself in historical method. And even though I had a, a, a BA in history, I did not, of course, at that time work with a lot of original sources. And so I thought, well, I should really do uh, a doctorate in history. And I did that at Dalhousie at the same time as I was teaching. And it, it was very much worth it. Uh, I suppose two reasons. One, simply the the idea of having to familiarize yourself with a broad survey of historical writing in a given field was useful. But then particularly, and the thing I suppose I carried on most, was was a rigorous approach to sources and thinking about sources, figuring out where you could find sources on particular matters, being critical about those sources, and then figuring out how you were going to relate your empirical findings to the themes in that broad literature that you had surveyed earlier on. So definitely uh, was worthwhile. Well, that's particularly important for the use of primary sources. Now, I understand that this is the first legal history of Canada. Why did you decide that such a history was needed in the first place? Well, I would say it has been needed for a, a long time, and there had been other attempts in the past, but they had always failed. I suppose 
the reason we took it on when we started this project over 10 years ago was really, although it had been needed before, it was now possible to do it. It was possible to write a synthetic work on the history of law in Canada because there had been so much literature produced on the topic since the 1980s. The 1980s was a sort of generational uh, divide when uh, a number of new people, a whole bunch of us sort of came on stream and started working on these issues. And in particular, the Osgood Society for Canadian Legal History was established in 1979 and started fostering writing in the field. And it now has published over a hundred books on Canadian legal history. Plus you have a voluminous article literature. So there is really a lot more out there than perhaps many people realize. But of course, the, the issue about this literature, similar to Canadian history literature in general, is that much of it relates to one province, one time period, one area of law, and it was really lacking a big picture. And we wanted to pull all this together and do a synthetic work that would cover all three legal traditions over the longue durée, with a view to providing essentially one-stop shopping for anyone interested in engaging with legal themes at any point in Canadian history. Uh, I think some people are, uh, some people who don't have legal training are somewhat fearful of the law, and we wanted to provide a way that such people could be introduced to the topic, to the literature, and be able to in engage with it without having to read all those hundred books of the Oscar Society. Uh, you know, this, this would provide an entry point uh, for, for a whole variety of scholars, historians, and others who might be interested in, in engaging with legal themes. One of the most fascinating aspects of the book is the fact that it uh, there's so much emphasis on Indigenous law, which was and has been largely absent in the Canadian literature until recently. Samuel Champlain himself said that uh, Indigenous peoples had no law, position that you disagree with, obviously. Uh, but it's a view that was shared by most Canadians, uh, I would say, after Confederation and perhaps even to this day. So your book vigorously contests the view uh, what are the sources of Indigenous law? And in your own life as a legal historian, how and when did you reject this view uh, espoused by Champlain and by most Canadians up to the present? Well, I don't think I ever actually espoused Champlain's view, so I didn't have to reject it. I just didn't really think about it at all. I was engaged in looking at the history of settler law in various fields, and I didn't really start to think seriously about Indigenous law uh, as a separate legal tradition until I started to plan this book. Uh, and in my own defense, I would just point out that one has to remember how recent the political and scholarly movement to reclaim Indigenous law as a legal tradition has been. The, the Indian Act system of governance and the residential school experience had so much interfered with Indigenous traditions that they had largely disappeared from view in settler circles, aside maybe from some anthropologists. If you look even at the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, right, which reported in 1996, that was a, you know, a vast enterprise, 
and had actually a number of Indigenous researchers who wrote separate reports on things, and then you have the final report, but there's many, many research papers as well. In that whole volume of material, there is almost no reference to Indigenous law. That's 1996. There is one piece about the Caswenta, the Gaswenta, the, the Turo Wampum idea, which is which has a lot of good information in it, but it has no footnotes, and so it has not had the uh, the kind of impact that it uh, perhaps should have had. But by the time I started working on, or I should say we started working on this book about uh, 10 or 12 years ago, the movement to reclaim Indigenous law had begun in earnest, fortunately. And so, uh, by that, we were certainly very much alerted to that and aware of that and, and clearly realized that Indigenous law would have to be part of, uh, of the picture. Now, of course, sources will always be tricky because it's a major feature of, of uh, Indigenous law that it has been passed on orally. <clears throat> now, some of these oral traditions were written down in later eras, such as the Great Law of Peace uh, that's observed by the Six Nations. Uh, in more recent times, Aboriginal rights litigation has sometimes led to the writing down of oral traditions that can be produced in court as evidence. Uh, that happened in the Dalgamuk case in British Columbia. Uh, but even even hist Indigenous historians, such as uh, Susan Hill, uh, whose recent book, uh, The Clay We Are Made Of, about the, the Six Nations, uh, is a very uh, successful work of history, I think. Even such historians rely on, not exclusively, but they do rely on reports of early missionaries and early settler documentation to tease out some aspects of Indigenous law. Now, you have to use these with great care, and you have to read against the grain, but historians are used to dealing with that in a variety of contexts, uh, such as using prison registers and the like to tease out features of the lives of disadvantaged or illiterate people who left no written records of their, their own. So the, the challenge, as is often the case in history, is you, you sort of have to work with what you have and you have to be creative about, about what's, what's there. Now, of course, even reading against the grain can have some pitfalls uh, or you have to use extra caution in the sense that you do have to have some understanding of the Indigenous worldview and, and of course, uh, one, as a non-Indigenous person, one does not have that instinctively, but you have to read as much as you can uh, in the readings of, in the writings of uh, Indigenous historians and uh, legal academics in order to try to put yourself in that position. I could be wrong, but it seems that in recent years uh, there's been a very simple dichotomy that's been made between Indigenous uh, law, culture, and government on the one hand, and settler culture, law, and government on the other. Um, but in the book, you describe the law related to monopoly charters issued for Rupert's Land in Newfoundland. Now, this is actually law that, particularly in the case of Rupert's Land, that was pre-settler in nature. So did the particular legal traditions and practices related to these uh, British commercial territories, if we can call them that, 
have a major influence on uh, the development of law in Canada later? Well, uh, let me say, first of all, that I found this whole area totally fascinating when I, I wrote this part dealing with Rupert's Land and early Newfoundland and so on, and I had not been all that familiar with seventeenth uh, and early eighteenth century uh, history, and really, I, I really had to restrain myself; otherwise, the whole volume would have run away with, with the seventeenth century, and we couldn't really let that happen. Uh, however, to answer your question more specifically. Newfoundland, really, there was no lasting influence of those charters, of those early 17th century charters. They were uh, largely, I mean, they became obsolete and, and uh, they were, in fact, declared uh, null and void in the 18th century, uh, much later. And this happened largely because the population growth was so slow that the type of society envisaged in the charters didn't really evolve. And I suppose you might say that the charters almost had a, a kind of negative, not negative in the bad sense, but a kind of opposite influence on Newfoundland because without really any, with, with the charters being in a sense not appropriate or effective tools of governance, the Newfoundlanders basically had to make up their own legal system, which they did reasonably successfully. And so it, it's, uh, and, and today it still bears evidence of that. It's a kind of DIY, you know, it was a DIY legal system. We could, we could put it that way. So it's almost uh, an, an anti-type influence of, of the charters. But Rupert's Land was very different. Uh, of course, there we have the famous Hudson's Bay Company Charter of 1670, uh, which continued in force, uh, unlike many of these other chartered companies around the globe that came to grief in one way or another, uh, the Hudson's Bay Company did uh, survive until, it, and well, survived till this day, although it may be just barely hanging on now. But the relevance for our purposes is perhaps not so much the charter itself, because the charter didn't actually say very much about native peoples. It makes a passing reference to know, the ability of the, uh, of the HBC to make war on peoples who are not Christian, but that was more or less irrelevant because the only people the HBC engaged in warlike activities with were the French, who were, of course, Christian. Uh, they, they did not really engage in wars with the native peoples because they needed them uh, to produce the resource that, uh, that they were there to, to exploit. And we have to remember that furs were a unique resource in North America. The acquisition and to some extent the processing of the furs was totally under indigenous, under indigenous control, unlike all other resources that required control over a workforce of some kind. In some cases that ended up being a slave labor force, sometimes indentured labor, uh, but labor was, was always key. And there was really no point in the Hudson's Bay Company trying to steal indigenous land because there was nothing the Europeans could do with it for the first 150 years of the charter. And if, then if we fast forward to the sale of the land to Canada in 1869, we see immediately after that, the treaty process begins. And that treaty process really 
was a continuation of the relationship that the Hudson's Bay Company had had with Indigenous peoples over that long history. There was never any... So, so even though it purported to sell the whole Hudson's Bay Company drainage basin to Canada, in effect, it was purporting to sell the reversion of that land, i.e. it only sold that land subject to all the existing Indigenous interests, and that was immediately recognized because the number of treaties started to be negotiated almost immediately after the uh, the surrender of that land. And that treaty relationship, for all its flaws, is, is still the basis of the relationship between the settler state and Indigenous peoples that's lasted until today. So it's not it's not perhaps directly the Charter itself, but the relationship that evolved in the shadow of the Charter, we might say, that is hugely important for uh, for the rest of Canadian history. Right. It's a question of legal culture, in a sense. You cover so much in the development of law in British North America from 1815 until Confederation. Everything from the court system to the legal profession, common law, civil law, that's impossible to cover it all. I'm just going to ask you uh, one question, and that is, what were the sources of law for the Civil Code of Canada that created this, in a sense, unique uh, legal regime uh, in the country? Well, there were, there were two main sources, really. Uh, there was the Custom of Paris, which really went back uh, to 1580 uh, in France, and when the Quebec Act said that recourse to law in Quebec was to be to the French civil law, it was really the custom of Paris that they, they had in mind. And that, although it's called a custom, it had been written down. So we had a written version in French of the custom of Paris that had been implanted uh, during the period of New France. So that source was very important. Uh, the other thing that was important was uh, pre-revolutionary doctrinal writing. So now people will often think that the Civil Code of Lower Canada is a kind of copy of the Code Napoléon of 1804. It's not. It follows the format of the Code Napoléon, but much of the substance is not the same as you find in the Code Napoléon. Because, of course, the Code Napoléon is the product of post-revolutionary France. And whatever Quebec is in the 19th century, it is not revolutionary. <laughs> so the, the French Revolution created this kind of big gap, which created a problem because the custom of the commentaries on the custom of Paris and on those areas of French law that were outside the custom of Paris, those were all dealt with by French doctrinal writing, by jurists, by famous authors. And there was a huge amount of this literature, just enormous amount of this literature before the revolution. And all of this was at, at least theoretically uh, applicable in Quebec after the conquest and indeed after the French Revolution. So uh, Quebec uh, judges and lawyers relied on, on some of this literature and continued to rely on it. But the problem is that after 1804, nobody in France is writing about this pre-revolutionary law because the Code Napoléon has abolished it. Code Napoléon says all existing law is abolished. 
Here is the source where we start over again, as this classic revolutionary kind of idea. So Quebec in the first half of the century was dependent on a body of juristic literature that was no longer being updated or elaborated, was pretty much now, as you went along in time, becoming outdated and unsuitable. And you even had the physical problem that these things were no longer in print. So how could we even find these works anymore that had been written in the 1750s, 60s, 70s. They were not very easily accessible. So those, the issues of the variety of sources and even the unavailability of sources uh, really helped to drive this, this uh, movement for codification. So I do have one more question, however, that I need to ask. And that is, what were the legal origins, that is, the pre-Confederation origins of what would become the British North America Act, our Constitution, given the rarity of federal constitutions at that time? Well, that's an interesting question, and surprisingly, that one that has been rather little investigated, and I owe the response I'm going to give to my co-author, Jim Phillips, because he worked on this part. Uh, the most important part of federalism is deciding what level of government is going to do what function. And that, of course, is laid out in sections 91 and 92 of the British North America Act. And those are new sections compared to, say, the Act of Union or the Constitutional Act of 1791. And what Jim found, uh, it's, it's a novel answer, but it's really quite simple. He said the framers had essentially adopted the division of powers that had already evolved under the Act uniting Upper and Lower Canada. Because even though the province of Canada between 1841 and 1867 only had one legislature, it actually legislated in three ways. It passed some statutes for the whole province of Canada, it passed some just for, upper, for what had been Upper Canada, and it passed some just for what had been Lower Canada. And it published three volumes of these statutes in the late 1850s and early 1860s. And when you look at the subjects of those statutes, the ones that were uh, that had applied to the entire province of Canada is virtually what you find in section 91. And all the other ones that were there for either upper or lower Canada is what you find in section 92, which of course are the provincial powers under the constitution. So it's not as if they kind of invented everything de novo. They relied very largely on the practice that had already evolved in this quasi-federal union that was the province of Canada. Well, that's fascinating. And of course, today, Canada's clearly a federal as well as a multinational and multicultural state. Uh, but historically, it was part of, of course, two European empires. Um, and you describe this as setting the context for the kind of legal pluralism uh, that is described in the book. So in pre-Confederation Canada, how did the multiple legal systems interface with each other? Well, there's certainly a lot more legal pluralism going on, especially in the 18th century and the early 19th century. Uh, this pluralism is beginning to decline somewhat by the time you're approaching Confederation. We will see the consequences of that in Volume 2. But what is really the, the big variable here is the, is the concept of law itself. In the 18th century, 
even the common law is quite polyglot, all right? We tend to think of the common law as a unified thing. It was not a unified thing in the 18th century. The common law was only one system of law in England among many others. Some of the courts used Roman law, some used ecclesiastical law, manorial law was still very important. It varied from manor to manor. Custom was important, and when I use custom, this is the technical sense of custom, i.e. A law, a law or practice that is not part of the common law itself. So, for example, even though primogenitor, where the oldest son inherits all the land, was the common law rule, that did not apply in the county of Kent in England. There they applied the custom of Gavelkind, where all the sons inherited equally. So there were, even within England, there were many... Um, different types of law. And so law is much more open-ended at this time, right? It's not, the big change you see in the 19th century is the emergence of this Austinian, John Austin's view of law, that law is the command of the sovereign and the only legitimate sources of law are statute or case law. Everything else, custom is totally denigrated. Everything else is kind of thrown by the wayside. And really the biggest uh, casualty of that much narrowed view of law, what we call a more positivist view of law, the big casualty of that was indigenous law. Uh, because in the 18th century, indigenous law was not so much of an outlier. Uh, because the, the, even the European concept of law was very much more open-ended. It could, it could kind of incorporate these different traditions without very much difficulty. You had this long relationship with the covenant chain, for example, between the Six Nations and the English crown. Um, that was, that was kind of understood and respected for a long time. But once you go to this positivist view of law, indigenous law really just cannot fit within that, all right? It's oral, it's customary, there doesn't seem to be a sovereign, we don't know where this law is coming from. You know, the, 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 the idea of law in the 19th century becomes much more a top-down view of law, whereas the 18th century view is much, is, is, can welcome a bottom-up view of law as well as a top-down view of law. Uh, so this, this emergence of uh, positivism around the middle of the 19th century is, is something that really sends indigenous law in particular into decline, but it also uh, doesn't help relations between English and French law either, because these two are come to be seen more and more as kind of uh, hard-edged systems that really have to work independently and that they really shouldn't be borrowing from one another, all right? Taking the much longer view, those attitudes in turn begin to change later in the later in the twentieth century. But uh, at the time you're asking about, up to pre-Confederation, we still have a pretty healthy legal pluralism in Canada. It begins to go into decline afterwards. Well, Philip, we very much look forward to hearing about legal pluralism in the volume two when it comes out. I don't know exactly when that book will be. Um, coming out, but we look forward to it. And I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you again for asking me. And we're planning to have volume two out in fall of 2022. So maybe we can have another interview when that happens. <laughs> My guest today was Philip Gerard. He is the co-author with Jim Phillips and Blake Brown of a new book, 
on the history of law in Canada up to Confederation, published by the University of Toronto Press in 2018. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can become a subscribing member and help support the preservation and publication of documentary history in Canada. Also, if you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. We want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallton. This interview was recorded on December 11th, 2020, during the COVID-19 pandemic. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt. Mm-hmm.